coming your way with all the humor and humanity that made him live on the stage. All the winning warmth that'll make him live in your heart. I saw something last night that just about knocked me out. I was up on the bridge. I looked through the glasses and it was a formation of our ships that stretched for miles. Carriers and battleships and cans, a whole task force, Doc. I thought I was on those bridges. It's Henry Fonda as Mr. Roberts, senior officer of the cargo ship USS Reluctant. James Cagney is the skipper, an old sea dog. William Powell as Doc, who has a surefire prescription for happiness, 100 proof. Jack Lemon as Ensign Pulver, who could get a girl in his sights even if he couldn't get one in his arms. And all the interesting, enthusiastic, exuberant men of the reluctant. And the girls who weren't so reluctant. They flew in last night. Knockouts and one big blonde especially. See, of course, she went for me right away, naturally. So I started to turn on the old personality, you know. And I said, isn't there anything in the world that'll make you come out to this ship with me? And she says, yes. She said, yes, there is one thing and one thing only. Only curry got nices on that island. Yeah, look. Look, second story, second story. See, she's a blonde, see? Come on over here by the window. Wow! There will be no liberty while we're in this here port. Take it out of me, but not of the men. Don't you hear that music? Don't you know it's tearing those guys apart? They're breakable, Captain, I promise you. Just how much do you want this crew to have a liberty? I don't know which I hate worse, you or that other malignant growth that stands outside your show. How did you ever get command of a ship? I hate your guts, you smart college guys. Powder? This ain't no pop gun, it's a firecracker. I used fulminator mercury. I'll be back in a minute. Fulminate a mercury? That stuff's murder. Do you suppose he means it? A firecracker into the old man's box. <laughs> to better days. Right. Is It Yours, the movie review program where we examine classic and new movies and place them on the Jaws scale to see where they land. I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined by a newcomer to my podcasting world today, Mr. Chris Keith. Chris, welcome aboard. How you doing? Yeah, new. This is my first time actually being on podcast period, so it's kind of cool. I'm just hoping I don't uh, stump, you know, stumble over every single word I say. I'll be good. Uh, I think you're going to be fine, but it's. I appreciate you joining me today and. The way this came out, came to pass is I threw something on Facebook with some movies that I was watching, and Chris came out and expressed his love of the of the one of the movies that I was watching, which is Mr. Roberts, the movie we're covering today. And I said, "Hey, why don't you come on with me and uh, let's talk about it a little bit?" And Chris was kind enough to come on, and here we are. So I guess we'll start off the way we usually do. What's your history with this movie? When did you first see it, or when do you first remember seeing it? And you know, where where is it in your life? 
Uh, you know, I first remember seeing it. I think it was in uh, it's probably in law school, to be honest. I think I was um, it was one of those where you finish studying at about 1 a.m. and you're flipping around channels because you're wired because you've had 18 cups of coffee. And I was like, oh wait, Jack Lemon. Okay, let me check this out. So that's how I got you know exposure to this movie. And uh, God, there's about 50 of them. I mean, it was it's three years, so you've got plenty of time that you you should be paying more attention to your outlines and you feel more like watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But yeah, I uh, I started watching it one night and i was like wait this is i mean i'd seen i'd seen the odd couple i'd seen um you know grumpy old men that kind of thing but to actually get into this one it, it just made me a fan like overnight it was it was really good well it seems to me like your the hook for you was jack lemon from the from what we've talked about and what you're just saying right now about you know the different movies that that you're comparing to it uh, yeah, Jack was, um, and it's funny because I got more. Into, it, it, this sounds really sad, but you know, I was I was into it when my my dad, you know, uh, had either rented um, The Odd Couple when I was a kid, so I was uh, familiar with that, familiar with some of those films. And it wasn't until this sounds so lame, but um, when Kevin Spacey won uh, Best Actor for American Beauty, he mentioned The Apartment. And how the performance by Jack Clement in the apartment was to him it was the greatest uh, acting he had ever seen in his in his entire life, and I realized I'd never seen it, so I just went on a binge for about has about six weeks. I saw the apartment, uh, Days of Wine and Roses, Irma LaDuce, um, a couple others that I can't think of off the top of my head. It was another one with Mathau where he pretended to be injured, and just was on a roll. And I was like, this is this is oh, that great. Was the fortune cookie. Yeah, that's it, the fortune cookie, and uh, and then I, it's sad. I didn't actually even get get around to seeing uh, Save the Tiger until about three weeks ago, and it was just before uh, it was about the week before you posted the thing about this, and I was like, wow, okay, I finally got his second and uh, final Academy Award movie, uh, you know, in, and I really enjoyed it. But yeah, I've just been a big fan of him. I mean, I. I I've, I've pro- I mean, uh, Henry Fonda, love him. Don't get me wrong, nothing wrong with Henry Fonda. But I mean, my exposure to Henry Fonda is really Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, The Grapes of Wrath, and um, I think On Golden Pond, and that's about it. So I'm not the most, uh, the most versatile. I need to make up for that probably in the next few years. I would say, I would say there's a good number of things that you could pick up. Uh, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, uh, and boy, I'm just drawing a blank. Which the the one where uh, the Jodes, where they... Uh, that's a Grapes of Wrath. Grapes of Wrath. That's that's probably the, the key performance that people point to. Um, but this is, no question about it, this is a star-studded cast. Uh, you know, you can point to Henry Fonda, you can point to Jack Lemmon, you can point to, uh, what's it called, William Powell, Jack James Cagney. I mean, it's just so many great actors in there in, in key roles. So we we can we'll we'll talk a little bit about each of them, but you know clearly Jack Lemon is your uh, your like I said your hook, and then I I found it interesting when I was watching this it was on Turner Classic Movies and I DVR'd it and I was watching it, and I saw that after this was over they were playing Ensign Pulver which I had not DVR'd, and Ensign Pulver did not star Jack Lemon in the lead role he he gave that up but I just found it interesting that in that movie in a supporting role was Walter Matthau. And the two of them went on oh, really? to, you know, have a tremendous partnership in movies, uh, you know, where they, where they became known as as a, as, as a team, uh, you know, specifically, as you said, The Odd Couple and The Fortune Cookie are two that come to mind right away for me, Grumpy Old Men also. Uh, 
so that, I just thought that was a kind of an interesting trivia thing that I had, I was unaware of until I watched this. <laughs> this this particular movie, I remember watching it when I was probably probably a young teenager. I was at a relative's house and they had it on the TV, and I just sat down and I became enthralled in it then. And I think to some extent it might be a byproduct of the fact that movies were a little bit different. Uh, I think like since the 1990s or so, they've been more of that quick cut, fast action. Uh, you know, whether whether you're talking an actual action movie or even a comedy, uh, there's there's less lag time, less less slow burn, less development than there was back then. And as a however old I was, 13, 14 years old, I had the mindset where I had no problem sitting through a movie like this, uh, which is really a character study. It's not you know, there's not there's no real action to speak of. Uh but you know, like I said, I think it was it was a different mindset watching it, and I remember really enjoying it and really enjoying the performances and you know a couple of laugh out loud moments in there. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, and and I think all of the performances of the of the key four top players uh, are top notch. Yeah, they. Uh, I mean, there's just you know, and I think you mentioned it a while back on one of the prior shows about. Um, what was the comment? Because my wife and I were discussing it, and I mentioned Mr. Roberts as an example, um, which is kind of what <laughs> we kind of fed into this whole thing. Was you mentioned that uh, back in the day, um, the the best movie was your Academy Award, you know, nominated movie, and it wasn't the most important film. You know, it wasn't, and not to not to you know to cast aspersions on My Left Foot or Atonement or uh, you know some of these films, but you know back in the day. You, you had really great movies that were just great movies. They weren't trying. They weren't trying to be important. They weren't trying to puff up and and make themselves out to be something more than you know. I, I guess you you kind of get. I don't know. I, I kind of get the sense that lately, the Academy Awards is basically the I'm full of myself awards as yeah. opposed to this is the best movie. Yeah, you're certainly on a page with me there too. <laughs> uh, I I kind of lost respect for the Academy Awards in the 1980s. And this this is where being older than most of my listeners uh, <laughs> kind of you know comes to to the forefront for me. Uh, I remember like in the '60s and then the '70s, where the best picture won best picture. You know, it was it was the best and the most popular movies like Rocky, movies like The Godfather, movies like Taxi. Well, Taxi Driver didn't win best picture, but uh, you know. It would be, uh, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. These these were really good movies, and it's not that they weren't meaningful, but they weren't necessarily artsy for artsy's sake. Yeah. And the first year where I remember being kind of disenchanted with that was 1980 when Ordinary People won. <laughs> yes. And And from that point forward, when you look at the Academy Award winners from 1980 on... A lot of them, to me, aren't the best movie. They're just the most artsy movie, or the you know the ones that you could pat yourself on the back the most for. And I have a problem with it, and I lost a lot of respect for uh, for the Academy Awards because of that. Yeah, I, I you know, it's really funny because I mean, this is it is a very simple movie. I mean, there's not. I mean, what do we have? Uh, three sets. I mean, you've got the deck. Well, no, four. You've got uh, you got the deck. You have uh, Doug and um, and Frank's room. You have the captain's quarters, and then you have when they go ashore. 
And, well, I guess there's two when they go ashore. But other than that, I mean, it is. And granted, it's based off of a play, and that makes sense. But even still, it's such a. It, 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 watching it, you know, it was funny when I fired it up the other night uh, to rewatch. I was like, wow, I just, you know, I forgot how condensed the the scenes are, where it's just so. I mean, for as much of a story, and you're right, it, it, it's all character, but it's all character with you know so so few sets, so few scenes. But there's it's so dense that you know I was I was kind of stunned. I, I, I finished it up and I was like, wow, that that is two hours long. It, it felt like it was um it, I don't know. It felt like it was a little bit longer. And I was like, I didn't. I guess it didn't dawn on me that movies back in that day were you know two hours plus. But yeah, it was and it was it was a full meal. <laughs> to, yeah. Oh, absolutely. To, and again, a lot of that goes to the performances, and the performances go, you know, they come from the material. You know, they, they were given really top material to work with, in my opinion, and then they made the most of it. Yeah. Now, I remember in sometime in the 1980s, probably in the late 1980s, but I couldn't tell you definitively, they did a staging of this play live for TV. Oh, really? Huh. Okay, you cut out for a second, but you came back. Good. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, it, it starred, uh, what's his name, Robert Hayes from uh, Airplane. He, he played Mr. Roberts. <laughs> Kevin Bacon played Ensign Pulver. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Dr. Johnny Fever. Howard Hessman played the doctor. And uh, Charles Durning played the captain. Interesting. I need to and and it, was, it was good. It was enjoyable. I've never seen it since then. I saw it when they first aired it, and that was it. But it was enjoyable. And, did uh, uh, did Mister Roberts have a drinking problem? Throwing, <laughs> no, throwing no, drinks no, over his no, shoulder? Not the same. <laughs> not the same as an airplane. But it, it was entertaining, and that said to me, because you know th- those are, are quality actors, but I don't believe they're of the quality of the actors we have in the movie. Right. And it was an enjoyable production, and that spoke to me somewhat about the quality of the material. That you know the that it lifted those actors up a little bit. Oh yeah, absolutely. Huh. Now in this case, we're taking really top-notch actors and then even lifting them up a little bit with the material. Which, uh, not to give my uh, my final verdict on this thing away too quickly, but that's the formula for making a great movie. I would agree with that. So let's let's uh, let's give the plot here. In the waning days of World War II, the United States Navy cargo ship Reluctant and her crew are stationed in the backwater areas of the Pacific Ocean. The executive officer, cargo chief, Lieutenant Junior Grade Douglas A. Doug Roberts, played by Henry Fonda, tries to shield the dispirited crew from the harsh and unpopular captain, Lieutenant Commander Morton, played by James Cagney. And I'm going to interrupt the description there to say James Cagney in a uh, basically in a villainous role where he's still not your protagonist is just a strange sight for me. But he he chewed up the scenery really nicely. (laughs) Eager to join the fighting, Roberts repeatedly requests a transfer. Morton is forced by regulation to forward his requests, but refuses to endorse them, which means they are always rejected. Robert shares quarters with Ensign Frank Thurlow Pulver, played by Jack Lemmon. Pulver spends most of his time idling in his bunk and avoids the captain at all costs, so much so that Morton is actually unaware Pulver is part of the crew. Roberts surreptitiously requests and is granted crew liberty from one of Morton's superiors, a port captain who wishes to reward the reluctant's crew for meeting a difficult resupply schedule. 
The Liberty is supposed to be at their next resupply stop, but when the ship reaches an idyllic South Pacific island, Morton denies the crew their much-needed shore leave. In private, Morton tells Roberts that the crew will not get Liberty as long as he continues to request a transfer and writes letters regarding disharmony aboard the ship, which endangers Morton's chance of promotion. Morton strikes a bargain with Roberts. In exchange for never requesting another transfer, never bending Morton's rules, and never revealing what has made him change his attitude, Morton will grant the crew liberty. Ashore, the crew lets loose after months of pent-up frustration. Many crewmen are arrested and hauled back to the ship by the military police and the shore patrol. The next morning, Morton is reprimanded by the port captain and ordered to leave the port immediately. Morton is almost speechless with rage at the black mark on his sterling record. Meanwhile, the crewmen are mistaken mystified by Robert's new strictness. Morton deceives them into thinking Roberts is trying to get a promotion. When a crew member informs Roberts of a new Navy police which might assist him in getting transfer, despite the captain's opposition, Roberts refuses to take advantage of it. News of the Allied victory in Europe depresses Roberts further, knowing the war, knowing the war may end soon without his ever seeing combat. Inspired by a patriotic radio speech celebrating VE Day, Roberts throws Morton's prized palm tree overboard. The captain demands the identity of the culprit, but no one steps forward. He eventually realizes that Roberts is the only person aboard with the nerve to do it. Morton summons him to his quarters and accuses him of the deed. An open microphone reveals to the crew what changed Roberts. Weeks later, Roberts receives an unexpected transfer. Doc, William Powell, the ship's doctor, and Robert's friend confides in him that the crew risked court-martial by submitting a transfer request with Morton's forged imperator. Before he leaves, the crew presents Roberts with a handmade medal, the Order of the Palm, for action against the enemy. Several weeks later, Pulver, who has been appointed cargo officer, receives a couple of letters. The first is from Roberts, who speaks enthusiastically about his new assignment aboard the destroyer USS Livingston during the Battle of Okinawa. He goes on to say he would rather have the Order of the Palm than the Medal of Honor. The second letter is from a college classmate of Pulvert's who is assigned to the Livingston, which reveals that Roberts was killed in a kamikaze attack shortly after the first letter had been posted. Incensed, Pulvert throws the captain's replacement palm tree overboard. He then marches into Morton's cabin, openly bragging about it and brazenly demanding to know why Morton has canceled the showing of a film that night. Morton slowly shakes his head, realizing that his problems have not gone away. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> oh, where to begin? Where to begin? Uh, yeah, where to begin? I got to tell you, just reading it through, that scene at the end, oh. when, when, when he Go gets ahead. the letter, never fails to get me choked up. I can't say it brings a tear to my eye every time, but it comes damn close. Um, yeah, you know, um, it's funny. Uh was I watching that week because it was like two movies that I saw and then something that had no business being that good but um, I, I, I wrote down my note was facial acting and it was so subdued where I mean he looks like he it was it was brilliant just the look on his face before he crumbles up the letter um, is amazing and I'm like wow you, you convey that much with just that look and yeah, it, I, I don't think I got choked up, but I was just, you know, at that point, and especially when uh, Doc, you know, gives the other letter to um, 
to the what was it the chief petty officer to uh, mm-hmm. no this is this is for them and it was the letter from Doug talking all about you know uh, all his experiences and and the the whole thing about um, oh, he was talking about he had a, a line in there I can't remember if it was something along the lines of um, uh, a terrible sort of suicide of uh, just the the malaise of them sitting there doing absolutely nothing and it was like you know they but first off they loved him but then you know for him to actually sympathize um with what what's going on with them it, i yeah i just <laughs> it, it really did uh it really did strike a nerve i'm, I'm gonna yeah i mean definitely I'm, I'm gonna take it a little bit into the mr roberts role First of all, I think Henry Henry Fonda's performance is superb. I think he did an excellent job. Uh, I think he was charismatic. I think he showed how he could stand up to the captain without actually committing mutiny. Um, you know, I think I think he he did, he did just a wonderful performance there. But going into the character and how he's written, I have to say it's a little difficult to totally understand his motivations. Not so much with. The crew, I understand that motivation very clearly. He's loyal to the men. He, he has total respect for them, and he wants to serve them correctly and give them every, every piece of help that he can. That all makes total sense. The part that I, don't, I can't totally get on board with, but I understand that other people are different than I am. I have no problem <laughs> understanding that. Like, it's not that it doesn't seem realistic to me. It's just I can't relate to it, is the aspect of his feeling cheated because the war is ending without him having a chance to do what he wanted to do. Uh, If the war had been unsuccessful, like to me, then you say, oh God, I could have done something to help. But the fact that they were celebrating victory, like it made a little tough for me to say, you know, why did, you know, okay, you didn't get to do your part in it, but we still won. (laughs) <laughs> to me, it's it's you know I guess it's like being on a World Series winner, and you were a bench player, and you you know you wish you had been the guy to hit the home run, but you still won the World Series. Uh, yeah, and you know it was, uh, and I didn't pick up on it the first time I saw this, and then I, I even the second time, but when uh, the doc was talking about it, because I totally missed I don't know how I missed that he was going to go to med school or he was in med school, and then he opted mm-hmm. out. And so so he goes and he enlists. And I mean, that was, you know, and I'm just thinking about it in the mindset of that kind of person who you enlist to, you know, presumably your your ideology, your mindset. And I, you know, I'm stepping into the, the shoes of my grandparents, but, you know, you want to you want to be that great war hero. And then you get on a boat where you're what was the what was the award called? It was the uh What's it called the, the, the Admiral John J. Finchley Award uh, for delivering more toothpaste and toilet paper than any other cargo ship. Mm-hmm. And I guess you just you have this glorified, um, you know, who am I thinking of that would it would be very similar? It would be um, <laughs> I can't believe I just thought of this, Lieutenant Dan in uh, Forrest Gump, okay. where he was in the long line of military heroes, and you know all of them died valiantly on the battlefield, and then he's sitting there, uh, hanging out, um, you know, listening to mu- listening to rock music, and they're um, having barbecue, and you know he- it's not exactly what he wanted, and then he's injured, um, and is you know sitting in a hospital when he should have died on the battlefield, and I don't I don't know that Doug necessarily wanted to die, but you got the sense that you know he I think he had the the mindset of this is what war is supposed to be, and he was just not necessarily disillusioned but just i guess disappointed disappointed that he wasn't you know living that ideal and he's basically just sitting there watching people scrub a deck all day and like i said i have no problem with the fact that while the war is going on he's feeling like his ability 
and his willingness to, you know, to participate is being wasted. I have no problem with that. I think that's admirable, and it's you know, it's all well and good. Where where it loses me a little bit is they get word that Germany has surrendered, and that depresses him because he wasn't a part of it. And that almost strikes me as almost a little. It, it's you know what I guess it's it's a it's it's realistic in that it's a regular human emotion, but it seems a little uncharacteristically selfish to me. Yeah, and to a certain degree, I mean, I, I thought about it watching it. Is that you know this? <laughs> I mean, you couldn't you couldn't find a more loyal crew to this guy. I mean, the when when uh, William Powell goes into the whole spiel about them uh, practicing the uh, the signature for the captain, and they're all having a contest, which he would what he say he participated and he was also a judge, um, and they all knew that they were risking what was it? I think they said five years in prison uh, for what they were doing, but they they you know just they loved him that much, and they I think they that and they felt that you know this guy's gone above and beyond him. He gets them you know liberty on that island, and then he stays on the boat. And even Doc said, you know, they're going to go at a certain point, and they never do. And then you know, the guys go crazy, and then he st- he stays on the boat. He never ends up. It, there was never any time for him. So these guys felt that they, you know, that, that he done everything for um, he done everything for them. They done nothing for uh, they done nothing to, to thank him. But I mean, just even even beside that, you know, they were they just absolutely. He was one of the guys. I mean, he wasn't. He wasn't. You know. Um, I mean, later on, you know, obviously when they think he's sold him out, they uh, they you know spurn him a little bit. But I mean, you still you still get the sense that none of them really, you know, deep down felt that he betrayed them. Yeah, I, I think you know, they, at best they get disturbed and are a little angry when they think that he, you know, that he's bucking for a promotion. But I think. Even before they hear the broadcast of you know what really went on, their anger is somewhat muted. Yeah, because I think he's he's earned so much respect that you know that that they're not gonna they they couldn't be totally angry at him no matter what. Right now, one of my very favorite scenes in this movie, and I was talking to one of my friends about it, and he said he saw this movie years ago. I think he saw it on the Disney Channel. And they cut out the scene. <clears throat> and I said, oh, you're talking about like when they're standing on the deck looking at the nurses, you know, showering? Said, no, no, that was still in it. The scene when they, when they make whiskey, or scotch, <laughs> scotch, rather, that was cut out. And that's, that is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I just, I don't know, it just plays so naturally. It's, it's kind of amusing to watch it. And 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 to a great extent, I think that's a tribute to the acting, because you know they're doing something kind of mundane, really, but just following along with it is just so enjoyable. Well, even um, you know, even Doug, I don't know if it was prior to that scene or just right around that, but he was, uh, you know, they, they do all this stuff for, you know, he he goes on making fun of uh, of Frank for what did Frank slept like sixteen hours a day, and you know, obviously the captain's never seen him, and he keeps saying, you know, Frank's all talk, and you know, no, he he never he never actually follows through with anything, but when you push comes to shove, you've got a guy who's. Uh, he he's making fun of Frank, you know. He's calling him. I mean, he's basically saying that he's all talk, you know. And and Frank is all talk, uh, you know. All the stuff he's going to do to the captain, even though the cat he's he lives in mortal fear of him. But you know, when push comes to shove, you've got they're sitting there, you know, <laughs> making him scotch, and the the ingredients in that are absolutely hysterical. I mean, what was it? It was a uh, Coke, and uh, hair tonic, 
And I'm trying to remember what else they put in there, but I was like, okay, because apparently they have an, a limitless supply of grain alcohol on this on this boat, <laughs> which because they said what was it? They went through three gallons of it the night they were um, the night they were trying having the uh, the forgery contest just to to see who could get it right. And I'm like, okay, well maybe I maybe I should have been in the navy. <laughs> yeah, but I, I you know I've never drank grain alcohol, and I'm kind of thankful. <laughs> that I've never really had the, that much incentive to try. No, I, yeah, I have a friend who keeps telling me about his uh, his uh, relatives that live out in West Texas that have stills and they're making moonshine all the time. He's like, oh, I can bring you some back. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm good. Uh, I'm good. I've gone 42 years without it. I think I'm good. You know what? What I I found somewhat amusing was when they say, you know what? Scotch always tasted like, tasted like to me iodine. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, let's back up for a second. How do you know what iodine tastes like? <laughs> Because I can honestly tell you, I don't. Oh. I've had scotch, but I could never have told you. And and I wonder, I wonder how many people saw that scene and decided to try and try iodine, duplicate their actions. <laughs> oh man, yeah, scotch is some disgusting stuff. Oof. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm into very very mellow drinks at this point in my life. Scotch <laughs> is not scotch is not on my drinking list, but it's still to me, it's a great scene. The, oh yeah. It's it's one of the things about this movie is the interaction of the characters. You know, we we talked a little bit about Henry Fonda. Uh, I want to mention William Powell. This is his last movie. Yeah, and he what he lived. I thought I read somewhere that he lived for quite a while longer. But he he was this was it. He called it a day, and then twenty more years until he passed away. Yeah, he lived to nineteen eighty four. Wow. Uh, let's see. He was born in eighteen ninety two. This movie is in nineteen fifty five. Yeah, I believe yes. So he was. Just what would that make him? Sixty-three years old when they made it. Yeah. So you know, I mean, he wasn't a young man, but I guess you know, I guess he just had enough and just wanted to retire because I don't. I I think I heard something where he started having, not that he had dementia, but he started having some memory issues that he didn't feel he was able to remember his lines Mm. as as easily as he was as a younger man. And that was, you know, a big incentive to him to retire. But he always had, in what I've seen him, and always a very natural persona about him. You know, very uh, grandfatherly or avuncular. And and I think that comes across in this movie. You almost wonder, you know, why a man at his age is is out on a, on a ship. But I guess, you know, doctors, you know, you didn't have to be a young man to be a doctor in the Army. Right. Yeah, no, you know, it... Somebody mentioned something about this. I saw this the other day, but uh, yeah, okay. So uh, Henry Fonda was born in 05, so he would have been 50 in this movie. And damn, dude, he does not look 50 years old. No, he did not. He he probably looked about 40. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking the same thing. And then when I saw that, I was like, that can't be right. That's that's clearly a, a typo. And I'm like, no, a couple of places. I'm like, no, he's really 50 years old. And then William, uh, William Shine, Jack Lemon was born in 1925, so he would have been about 30 when they made this movie. Yeah. Which is which seems about right. Oh yeah. And and he he, you know, we'll go to him for a little while, and uh, I'll, I'll let you loose on him in a moment. But okay. uh, if everything I've ever seen him in, he always had just a kind of a, a natural, easygoing way about him, where like he would seem he always seemed very very approachable 
even when he was Felix Unger, he seemed very approachable. <laughs> he, he just, there was something about him that, that was kind of inviting. I guess, you know, it's, it's a form of charisma. Uh, and then I remember his son, Chris Lemon, was on a sitcom in the 80s and had a, had a very similar delivery. He wasn't nearly the actor his dad was, but very similar just as his general demeanor and, and appeal. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think he, he portrays the character of Ensign Pulvis so well in this, not only to be this enthusiastic young kid who is a little bit, you know, bites off a little more than he can chew and brags a little bit more than he can deliver, but the thing about it to me that brings it to another level are two things. The, the scene that you mentioned, his facial expressions when he reads the letter about how Doug was killed, but also when he's talking to Doug and you see how much he desperately wants Doug's approval. And I think that that's where he kind of shown as an actor in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, there are, I mean, yeah. And I was trying to think, you know, cause everybody knows someone like this guy, <laughs> but you know them that they're not likable. I mean, I know somebody who has all these characteristics. I knew him in college and he was a, Oh God! Uh, anyway, he was he was like this, totally a braggart, um, and you know he was annoying as hell. And but he didn't have that charisma. I mean, and I'm glad that he doesn't listen to this podcast because he'd go, dude, what the hell? But um, but no, it was uh, there, there's you know something about him. And yeah, you mentioned um, you mentioned Felix Unger. It's kind of funny because um, you know I was watching The Odd Couple. I think it was last week and. That's the one thing. That's the one reason why I never liked the uh, the TV show um, was I never believed that Oscar and Felix were friends on the TV show. I never could believe that these guys actually liked each other. Whereas in the movie, they you you get it. You feel that when you know when he's uh, when he's trying to jump out the window to kill himself, um, you feel that Walter Matthau really cares about his his friend. You you don't you don't get that. I didn't get that from Tony Randall and Jack Klugman. I never I I tried to watch. I've I've seen every episode of that show, and I'm like, no, I it's funny, but I don't get I I, I don't believe that they're really friends. And especially, well, I got I got to tell you, you're 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 harping on my favorite sitcom of all time, but that's besides the point. <laughs> uh, We'll we'll stick to Jack Lemon here because I can debate the merits of the Odd Couple TV show with you at a later date. <laughs> what I would what I would say is to me that show took off a little bit more when Jack Klugman and Tony Randall decided to be themselves and not do an imitation of Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau, which it felt like they were doing during the first season. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But uh, you know, if, if nothing else, uh, you know, Jack Klugman and, and and Tony Randall remained friends up until Jack Lugman passed away. Yeah, Jack Lugman passed away first, I believe. I uh, I don't want to go too far off the field on this, but I just feel the need to mention. I uh, Myself and a friend of mine, uh, Paul Smith, who's active on our uh, Facebook pages, uh, he and I have been Odd Couple fans for 40 years. Oh, sweet. And uh, when in the 1990s, when... Uh, Jack Klugman and Tony Randall came on Broadway to do the Sunshine Boys together. He and I went to see it. And to me, that was there was a little bit of a showing of how good friends these two were because Jack Klugman had had throat cancer and he had surgery and he had that, you know, that scratchy voice because of it. Yeah. And the only reason he came out of retirement to do this was because of his friendship with Tony Randall. And Tony Randall said, let's do this to make money for, you know, they, they gave away their entire salary to young actors uh, you know, young struggling Broadway actors. Wow, so that's uh, 
That's really cool. But I think it speaks for the chemistry between the two of them that they ended up being basically best friends for the rest of their lives. That's, and it's similar that's awesome. to Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, the way they had that chemistry together and, and stayed friends for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So, so I do see a lot of parallels between the two, and uh, you know, it's. But we're here to talk Jack Lemmon right now, <laughs> right? And uh, he's one of the actors. There's there's a list probably of about, if I if I think hard, there's probably about ten actors on the list, actors or actresses. I don't want to be a misogynist here. Uh, who I can tell you, I've seen them in bad movies, but I've never seen them give a bad performance. And Jack Lemmon would be included in that. I can't think of ever seeing him in a performance where I felt like he mailed it in, or he, you know, where he wasn't convincing in the role that he took. Now, I guess to some extent you have to know your limitations because I'm sure there's some role that's out of the range of every actor. And if you've never performed a role where you couldn't, then it means you never took one where you weren't able to to, to reach that level. But he is one of the people who I, I believe fits that. Uh, I'm just off the top of my head. I would put Gene Hackman and Robert Duvall in the same category. No, definitely. Yeah, I, I can't think of a single. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can tell you, all three of them, I've seen them in bad movies. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but again, ne- never. it was never a bad movie because of the way they acted. Right. Yeah. There's uh, and there's. Yeah. I was trying to think. I was trying to think. When you, you said it, I was like, I can't think of a single bad role. I mean, there was. Um. I mean, my fellow Americans is. It's okay. Uh. But I thought he was great in it. I mean, well, actually, he and James Garner actually sounded like they really got along. But then again, after watching that documentary about um about Jack Lemmon the other night, it seems like everybody loved that guy. So. Especially Peter Gallagher. <laughs> this, uh, this, uh, if you if you get a chance to check it out, it's um, it's an extra on Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. It's uh, called Magic Time, and it's only about thirty minutes long. But it's like a, it it's just little select interviews with various people. So it's got his son Chris. It has the director for Glenn Gary. It had um, Peter Gallagher was had a, a large part to it, and they're just talking about their experiences. And then they had um, who's the guy that hosts Inside the Actors Studio? Um, well, uh- James, James Lennon. James, yeah, James. He um, he had a it was really powerful, especially if you've seen Days of Wine and Roses. So it was it was really I was I, I got a chance to watch it uh, was it last night or the night before in preparation for this, and it was just a I was kind of disappointed because it was only thirty minutes long. <laughs> so, Mr. Robich is actually based on a a novel, which was then made into a play, which was then made into the movie. Yeah, and to hear um, Henry Fonda, I was reading something about it where it said that apparently Fonda was not um, fond. That I really almost say Fonda was not fond of this movie, and he thought that the uh, the stage presentation was far superior to the movie. He did not speak highly of this, but it may have something to do with getting sucker punched by the director. So yeah, we should talk about that for a minute. Apparently, Fonda played the role on Broadway. Yeah. for for I think they said close to two years. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's what I heard. Maybe it might have been on and off for two years. But, uh, yeah, uh, what you know, John Ford was the director. Now, John Ford is famous uh, for his heavy drinking with his actors. Uh, you know, he was big with, uh, you know, big John, a big John Wayne troupe uh, director. And, uh, you know, known, known, again, known for heavy drinking, I believe also with Bogart. And apparently he and Henry Ford had an argument, and Ford punched Fonda in the jaw. 
and then was replaced by uh, Mervyn Leroy, who, uh, who I'm trying to remember, Mervyn Leroy, I believe, uh, was the Wizard of Oz uh, director. So he, it's not like they went and got a piker. Let me just yeah. See. Let's see, what's he got here? I wasn't even familiar with Mervyn Leroy until I uh, was researching this earlier. Yeah, he's the Wizard of Oz and Little Caesar. Oh! Yeah, here we go. Partial filmography. Where are we? I am a fugitive from a chain gang. Uh, just looking for the big names. Wizard of Oz. Actually, it says MDM, MGM producer only. I thought he was a director on it, but I guess he was just a producer. Johnny Eager. 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Uh, Mr. Roberts. The Bad Seed. The Green Berets. Not not really a great movie. <laughs> uh, but just the same. They, they delivered in this, and you, you wonder at what point in the production that that uh, confrontation took place, how much was filmed already, and how much still needed to go. Yeah, that would be a good... That's always the that's always the stuff you really want to know when you think about it. I mean, you, you if you're going to switch directors, you know, at what point, was it midstream, or was it, with you know, the tail end? But I mean, I, I can't imagine they do much. They did much post-production back in 1955, but even still, you know, you've got to, you got to finish your vision. Yeah, I mean, I guess the post-production at that time really was, you know, the editing... And the adding, you know, adding the layer of music onto it. I don't think there's really a hell of a lot more to it than that. Certainly yeah. no CGI. <laughs> no, they're not bringing anybody in for some uh, additional shoots and have them shave their beards or anything like that. Yeah. So, you know, this was fairly well received. Uh, the box office for it is listed as $21.2 million. And it says it's... Where is it? The financial grossed 21.2, earning 8.5 million in U.S. theatrical re- rentals. I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, if that's saying worldwide 21, because I would I would think this would earn the most in the United States. So I'm not sure of the exact breakdown there. Right. But it does it does say it was a financial success. Yeah, I was looking for the budget in a few places and I couldn't find it. Which I mean, that's not unheard of for a movie that that's you know from this vintage but even still i think you'd be able to find it somewhere so we we have you know just from from a conflict point of view we have mr roberts who wants to get you know who's itching to get active we have ensign polva who basically wants to grow up i think that's his story arc he wants to grow up and and he does complete that because at the end of the movie he effectively becomes Mr. Roberts. Yeah, absolutely. And then we have the conflict between the captain whose only goal is to get a promotion no matter what the cost. Yeah, and you know that whole scene um, when Doug goes up there for the liberty and he goes into his whole uh, reason for not liking what he refers to him as a college boy and how he was serving them. Uh, but what he, I guess he was a, a waiter. But you get, you know, you get the sense. I mean, this, you finally, I, I, after seeing it twice, I finally had some empathy for the captain, sort of. I mean, you kind of see it from his point of view, I guess. But my, the only thing that stuck in my head, and I, I wrote this down as a question, is. I was always under the impression that in order to be an officer in the Navy, you had to actually 
at least, I mean, maybe this is just now, but I just always assume that you had a college degree uh, or you went to, uh, you know, one of the academies. And to have him, uh, which it sounds like he just worked his way up, and I was like, well, clearly he didn't get a, you know, clearly he didn't get a, a battle, you know, a, a, a conflict, a, what do they call it, a battlefield promotion, um, serving, uh, you know, getting toilet paper. So I'm just kind of curious how he went from, you know, what his, I, I guess what his, what was his career path and how he got there. But I don't know enough about the Navy to, to know the answer to that. No, I don't either. I'm not a military man. But the one thing I would think from just my school studies, is during World War II, they would have wanted enough able-bodied people serving that if he was a captain in some other function and then came into the Navy because we were at war, that they, you know, they could use an experienced captain, uh, especially he's not in combat. So it's not even like you got to worry about, well, he didn't have the formal training, you know, the combat training. We need him to deliver toilet paper and, you know, and now food that you and all of that stuff. Yeah. And now that you mentioned it, I think he said something about Merchant Marines, so that may be the his path in. He was, um, he was doing something along the lines of just a, you know, whatever that entails. So, okay, well, that makes a little bit more sense. And, 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 I did and love uh, Doug's line, too. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I did love Doug's line to him. Where, how did you get in the Navy? And how did you get on our side? How did you get to be on our side? And I think that is the most biting, scathing line of the entire film. But, you know, I, I think you make a good point, though, where you start to see his motivations when he talks about, you know, how upper class, for lack of a better word, people would look down their nose at him and that he carries a lot of resentment to anyone who he considers a quote-unquote college boy, uh, you know, for, for the way he was treated. Now, it's wrong of him to take that out on these people who, you know, never did him wrong, but it does make his motivation more clear and understandable. And as I said, even, even in roles where Jack Cag James Cagney was the bad guy, like a movie like White Heat, for instance, he was likable. And he never seemed like the, like a bad guy, even though he was the bad guy. Right. Whereas in this movie, he is not likable at all. Oh no, he's he's absolutely horrible. And, and I'm and fairly I think that, sure that he speaks for his acting ability to some extent too. Yeah. And I, I think I read somewhere that uh, apparently he and um uh, and, and this is Cagney after this, I guess was just. Um, became lifelong friends with Lemon after this movie, which probably meant that Lemon just totally cracked him up the whole time, and they were on the on the on the set. Well, from everything I've ever heard about Cagney, is he? I always heard that he was liked by everybody he ever worked with. That he didn't he didn't have, like you wouldn't worry about John Ford punching him in the jaw <laughs> because just everybody liked him. He he just had that kind of personality. Which, which seems strange because Henry Fonda, at least his on-screen persona, seems like a guy you would never punch in the jaw either. Right. You know, I've never seen Henry Fonda in... I'm trying, well, no, actually, I, I'm trying to remember. I did see him as a bad guy in a movie once. Which was... Was that Once Upon a Time in the West? Was he the bad guy in that? Ah, uh, you know, it's been so long since I've seen it. I think he was, but it was... Uh, who was in that? That was... Was what, Bronson? No, that wasn't yeah. Bronson. Yeah, was it Bronson? Bronson. Yeah. It's been years and years since I saw it. I would say over thirty years since I saw it, and I don't yeah. really remember it very well. This, uh, you know, you and you and I have a similar background in that uh, 
apparently we would get on a kick where you just pick an actor and you start pulling out movies with them in it. Yeah, I'm bad about that. I'm very yeah, that, bad about that. That came to me in, in the uh, in the late '80s when I was in law school, and uh, the video stores were just starting to really become like, oh, for a dollar you rent a movie, and and you know, many days where I should have been sitting and studying, I would say, okay, you know, time to let's see, they have 20 John Wayne movies on there. I'm going to go one a day for the next 20 days, and I'm going to see all of them. And okay, there's the Humphrey Bogart shelf. There's, you know, whatever. And, and I would just run through these things. Uh, so a lot of them, you know, a lot of them have stuck with me and a lot of them just kind of, you know, blend at this point. But I look back on that time fondly for, for that. Yeah, it's about the only thing I look back fondly from law school is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Sting, um, Glenn Gary, this. Uh, <laughs> Uh, just, yeah, any of those that I got on is uh, either a Paul Newman kick or a Jack Lemmon kick for about a good, a good two months there. So it was kind of nice. Yeah. I, I got on various kicks over, over time. And like I said, it's, it, it was nice to be able to do that. And I'm sure I have the ability to do it now too. I just don't have the free time. Yeah, exactly. So what do we have? I'm trying to think of what other conflicts we have. I mean, the, the doctor in this doesn't really have a story arc. He's just kind of there as a supporting player to, you know, give Doug somebody to uh, exposit to and to, you know, be a shoulder to lean on. But I, I guess his his funny scene is when he when the people are trying to come out with uh, with ways to get out of active duty <laughs> and everything is aspirin. Yeah, uh, he, no matter what they claim they have, two aspirin, three aspirin. Yeah, that you know that that scene. Uh, well, two things about that scene just cracked me up. One, it almost typified how just absolutely miserable it must have been on that boat. I mean, they're you know, and they you know, the the, the uh, intercom with the now hear this where they get what is it, um, fifteen minutes to buy peanut brittle from the store. They've got ten minutes to swim, and then it just seems like they're up on this deck scraping uh, rust off, or they're you know mop or doing all this and that's that's your function for the entire war and um there was that and then the thing that always cra- it, it cracked me up about this movie and it uh, and it reminded me of the longest day was it seems like everybody that was enlisted on this boat and it's same thing with everybody on the longest day is apparently from the same city block in brooklyn because <laughs> they all have an ident- they all have an identical accent. And I was like, okay, hey, that's great. No more power to you. But I think uh, I grew up with these people. <laughs> but yeah, I absolutely love that scene. Um, I mean, he's just and he was he was getting ready for it, even you know telling Doug beforehand because they would they come up with every illness known to man. I guess they looked up some in a in an encyclopedia before they came in just so they could be prepared. Yes, and I, I don't remember what what the guy ends up saying he has, but then he asks him, you know, which arm do you feel it in? Oh, that's the wrong one. It's the wrong one. <laughs> two two aspirins, two aspirins for floating whatever. Oh <laughs> man, just just so you know, so many little clever things, and I, I I don't know if we're really doing it justice for somebody who never saw this movie, unfortunately. Uh, it I I think a lot of it you know owes to the acting performances. And a lot of little subtleties in the way it's written, and it's hard to just sit here and, you know, go over that at any length. It's more or less something that you have to watch to appreciate, I believe. You really do, and I mean, it's 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 hard. I was in there. The, the to me, the funniest. Well, yeah, the funniest scene of the entire movie, and I still can't figure out how Henry Fonda kept a straight face. Was the marbles in the uh, can? 
when he's shaking him in front of him. And mm-hmm. how Henry – and it's just so – it's a simple scene. It's not even just you know like laugh – it shouldn't be laugh out loud funny, and I'm giggling the whole the whole scene. And I'm just like, this is – this is just how does he keep in a straight face? <laughs> and, and but to try to explain that to somebody, it's like no, no, no. You you really just need to sit down and you need to watch this whole movie and get the full experience. And then whatever you know, I, I when I picture um, Frank Pulver walking around the boat, I I see him singing that stupid song everywhere he's if going. I could be with you tonight. <laughs> and you know what's funny is I, I can I can always picture Jack Lemmon singing that, and I could also picture Bugs Bunny singing that. I could see that, absolutely. Because there was the one scene where he's having the rivalry with the, I don't even know what his name was, like a big dumb rabbit trying to, they were both trying to date some girl, and as they were like getting ready, they were both singing that song. <laughs> Which I'm sure was inspired by this movie. Probably so, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it, it, it is definitely a movie where the comic timing comes into play, and uh, a lot of it is Jack Lemmon's comic timing. I'm even thinking when, now when he re, when he's reading Doug's letter at the end, and Doug mentions, "Oh, I'm sure the captain's going crazy because of the marbles in his whatever it was." And oh, right, like, yeah, the, yeah. the way he reads the letter, and he just kind of stops and moves on, and and it's just you know impeccable timing, really, in the way he the way he performs it. Yeah. Uh, so you know that's really what this movie has got going for it is, I think, like I said, the character study. Uh, Everybody except for Doc kind of has a story arc. Well, not everybody. Doug and Ensign Pulver have story arcs. Yeah. And then uh, just, you know, a stellar cast. Now, uh, Kirk Greenfield put something on Facebook when I posted this saying that in the last scene with the letter being written, uh, there were some famous people in the background. And I was trying to look online to confirm that. I'm trying to remember who he said there was. I think he said... uh, it was Dom DeLuise. Dom DeLuise, really? This, this is well. This is what he said. Okay. I, I I could neither confirm nor deny, unfortunately. I I looked uh, through the IMDb and I thought I saw was the actor who played um what's his name on Gunsmoke uh, Festus. I thought I saw his name on there, but I didn't really. Well, just just as as. Actors that are in this thing that that are recognizable to me, you have Betsy Palmer was the woman, and it, and if what I remember her for is being the crazy mother from Friday the Thirteenth, from the first one, yes, Miss, Mrs. Voorhees. Oh no way! Yes. <laughs> okay, now I'm gonna have to watch Friday the Thirteenth. I haven't seen it in twenty years. And James, she was so pretty in this movie. But <laughs> yeah, then, but then this was. I guess thirty years earlier. Yeah, what happened? Uh, it's all Ward, Bond, Ward Bond is the chief. Uh, Ward Bond is a famous character actor. He was uh, most John Wayne movies from the fifties and sixties. He's in the background if you watch. He, uh, he's he's in a lot of them. Uh, we have Harry Carey Jr. is another guy from John Wayne's troop who was in this. Patrick Wayne, John Wayne's son, has got a small part. Tyg Andrews, which, if I remember correctly, he was the captain from uh, from a police show from the nineteen seventies. Uh, the Mod Squad. The Mod Squad. Was he in the Mod Squad? Yes. Oh, captain dear. Play, played Captain Greer on the Mod Squad. And who else? Martin Milner, who, from uh, Adam Twelve, is the shore patrol ensign. And that's those are the names that I recognize that jumped out at me. 
Yeah. But, you know, definitely recognizable people to me. And uh, so so I think, you know, again, we, I think we have a well-written story, a stellar cast who's bringing the A-game, uh, quality direction despite the uh, the problems that they had in that regard. And just overall, just a, a very enjoyable experience. And I think I'm already going to, I'm going to just jump out. I'm not going to even waste any time. I'm going to just say, to me, this movie is Jaws. This this is as good, you know, for the for the genre it's in, this is as good as you're going to get. You're, you're not going to find a better made movie of this style. And, and, you know, end of story. It, it's It's got so many things going for it. It's so enjoyable. But I'm going to ask you, Chris, what do you think? I think it's absolutely Jaws. Um, seeing it this this uh, this time just reinforced that. I mean, I was, when you when you mentioned it, I'm like, God, I, and I haven't seen it at that point. I think it's it had probably been ten years since I'd seen it, and then um, proud of that about ten years. And uh, just going back and and watching it, it was just such a like a there's it's so dense for being such a, a simple film that every. Every scene, I just I, I wanted to make sure that there were no distractions. I wanted to make sure that that I was able to sit down and and focus on everything. You know, there's some other shows I'll watch where I can sit there and have my you know my iPad over here. Or I'm messing around on my computer, but with this, I was just you know, just focused. And it was like every and and yeah, I'm a total mark for for Jack Lemmon, and I'm I'm really I think I've I've got a, a a little note here to go dig up some Henry Fonda movies and Cagney because I don't. I don't have enough experience watching a lot of their films, but just the 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 story's great. the The feeling you get of of yeah, like you said, the the interaction between Frank and Doug, where he is trying to seek his approval, and Doug really does like him. I mean, he's he's such a charismatic kid that he really likes him. He wants him to be basically Doug wants he wants Frank to be what he should be. And at the end of the movie you start to see okay, this is, you know, Doug takes it a step farther than oh, Doug. Frank takes it a step farther than Doug. He rips the he rips the uh, stupid plant out of the wall and then throws it over and then, you know, Yanks the door open and what does he say? It is I, Frank Thurlow Pulver. Um, and then now what's and I this? just threw your palm tree <laughs> overboard. Now what's this about yeah. no movie tonight? Movie. Yeah, and it's so. I mean, it's the perfect way to end the movie. And just the look on the look on Cagney's face when he realizes, oh my God, <laughs> I got rid of one and I just replaced one with one A, and now I've got to put up with this guy for the rest of the war. It's just, it's fantastic. So yeah, this movie to me is one that I I never get tired. I mean, I, I need to watch it more, um, but I never get tired of Lemon movies. I, I'm gonna probably get on a kick here after watching this and go and plow through um some like it hot um the apartment um you know some of the, I've, there's a couple i haven't actually seen that i need to to track down but um yeah this one it needs to be on a, a better rotation just because it is that great and it's I, it's just such for being such a and i hate to say it, it it sounds like i'm belittling the movie but it is a simple film it's a simple story there's just such a a base to it that is just you know, you know, it, there's not a lot to it, but what's there is so just honest that once this thing, you know, once it's over, you're like, wow. I mean, it, it hits you in the Doug's death hits you in the chest, and then the the growth of Frank, you're like, wow. I'm, I'm, I finished it, and I, I seriously sat there and thought, wow. I almost want to go back and watch this whole thing again just one more time, just before I go to sleep. But it was yeah. it was already eleven o'clock, and I, I think that's where it's deceptive because it is a somewhat simple story that you 
tend to discount it a little in your mind when you're not watching it. And then you sit down and you watch it and you say, you know, this really is good. <laughs> you know, like all of a sudden it just hits you. Like, wow, I, I, you know, I forgot how good this is. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's the way I, I was when I was watching. Now, I knew I liked it a lot. I hadn't seen it in quite a, you know, quite a while, but I, I knew I, I always enjoyed this movie, and I DVR'd it, and I was getting ready to watch it again, and I, I fully expected to enjoy it, and I surprised myself. I was like, boy, I forgot how good this was. Yeah, yeah, I felt the same way. Now, I got to, you know, just occurred to me when you were talking about Frank and, and uh, Doug's relationship, is Doug to Frank the theoretical big brother or the father? Probably a little bit of both. Uh, I mean, he's the big brother to he's the big brother to the entire crew. Um, Doug, Doug Frank doesn't. Frank treats him like it's his older brother. Um, and he's. And I think Frank treats him like he's his older brother, but I think Doug treats him almost like a son. Yeah, he does. Like like when when Doug is reprimanding him in a constructive way. You don't get the feeling of, well, what you get the feeling of is that Doug could just let him off the hook and say, yeah, you know, go about your business. Don't worry about it. But it, it almost feels like he has this responsibility to him. Like, I, I want to help this kid to grow and become more, which almost seems like a parental feeling. It is. Yeah. And that's why he, why he kind of tells him, you know, yeah, you know, I, I, I think you're a likable guy, but I don't think you ever do anything you're going to say you're going to do. And, you know, you just. You know, you, you're, you're you're wasting your talent effectively, and it just seems like you know. I always kind of thought of it as a big brother relationship, but then when I start thinking about that more, it seems almost parental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's that's. I think that's right. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, because um, like I said, the the crew once he's once they. I, once he starts, you know, dressing down, I can't remember who it, it was on the deck when he starts dressing him down about the uh, the transfer order, and this is, you know, when they think he's bucking for a promotion, they're not aware of what's going on. But that's the one time that he actually is the commanding officer, because every other time he's the guy they go to to, hey, Doug, we don't want to, you know, and, and they they go to him to whine, and he basically has to be their he's their shoulder to cry on the whole time, and that's the one time that he's. I mean, he ne- and he never lords it over any of the crew. The only person he I guess he doesn't have any. I don't want to say he has no expectations for them, but he he knows what they are. He knows what they have to put up with because I mean they're having to deal with all this nonsense. But it's different with Frank because when he looks at Frank, you're right. He sees what Frank can be, and maybe what Frank can be is just a pain in the ass for the <laughs> for the captain. But he's also uh, going to be somebody who can step up and you know uh, what's the line that um. What's the line that Doc says about if uh, you know if they were in a different place, where if uh, if Frank were a, a B twenty nine pilot, he would be uh, he would have a Medal of Honor on his chest. But he just you know it, it's basically like he drew the short straw and he's on this boat where he doesn't have mm-hmm. the opportunity to to I don't know I don't want to say express himself, but he doesn't have the opportunity to take that initiative. And Doug just is basically just pointing at him, saying, "No, you take the initiative in the spot that you have. Yes, it's not. Yes, you're not on at." Normandy. You're not. Um, you're not at Okinawa. Um, you're not at Iwo Jima with a, a rifle in your hand. However, your opportunity is to to step up and be that guy, depending on the role. And your role is is going to. I think he really envisions. You're right. He is a dad. He's he wants him to 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 take that leadership role. And whether that just means being the 
what, what ultimately ends up being, as you see at the very end of the movie, is he is the shoulder to cry on to a certain point. But I think all the you, you kind of get the sense that the crew realizes that even if they complain to to Frank prior to him throwing the tree in the water, it's not going to get them anywhere. I mean, they're going to sit there and do it because he's he's this guy. But he almost he almost takes a step above Doug because, like I said, when he throws it in there and then busts the door open and announces himself, it's like, no, this is this is a yes, I'm going to be like him. But maybe he's a, he's just like a, a you know a baby step higher. Like he's taken that extra step, that initiative that Doug always wanted him to take. Yeah, exactly. And in, in fact, he like you say, he takes it a step further. Whereas, you know, Doug would do what he needed to do and was never afraid of the captain. Now Frank is openly confronting him. Yeah. You know, coming right out and saying, you know, I'm not putting up with this crap anymore. So he he definitely was inspired by his. Big brother slash father figure. That said, you know, I, I, my concern is that we're just not making this sound good enough. This is such a good movie that I think we can't do it justice, <laughs> no matter how much we talk about it. And if anybody out there is listening to this and has any appreciation at all for, you know, for older movies at all. Uh, you know, there there are people out there I know, like, if, if it's a movie that's 20 years old, it's like, well, I can't watch that. If you're one of those people, you're one of those people, and I'm not going to try and convert you. Uh, but if you can appreciate, if you could sit down and watch a movie and just appreciate it for the quality of it, uh, I can't recommend this highly enough to you. I would second that there's not um there's i'm i'm not a bad offender but i've taken that um afi top 100 movies of all time list and tried my best to go through there and i'm the uh i'm the guy who just finally saw casablanca within this last year (laughs) and Mm -hmm. there's there's quite a few on there that are you know very old films that i to be honest i should have seen and it's like what the hell's wrong with you i mean i went for i was what 41 until i saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest and i had been getting crap about it for 20 years from a friend of mine saying why have you not seen this i was like i'll get around to it i'll get around to it and then when i finally saw it i'm like wow this movie is exceptional this is one of the best movies i've ever seen and i didn't have the problem the problem with this movie it just happened to be on one night and i watched it and realized how great it was but yeah there despite you know if, if a movie's old it does not mean some of the some of the great Greatest movies I have ever seen are 50, 60, 70 years old. It just—it doesn't matter how old it is. It's, it's if it's well crafted, and the care is—is is, you know, the, if the actors care about their their performance, if the you know if everything comes together, then you can you can make a masterpiece at any time. Absolutely, and it some sometimes it does take a little bit of patience to watch things and to understand they made things differently in different eras. That doesn't necessarily speak to the quality. The quality is, you know, there's qualities, quality movies in every era. And the 1950s actually has a lot of movies that I think have kind of gotten forgotten by the current, you know, current group of, view, of viewers that maybe need to, to take a look at some of them a little bit more closely. And I think this is one of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that said, I want to thank you for coming on with me today, Chris. This was fun. Oh, it was absolutely, it was a blast. And, uh, Normally now is when I'd let you pimp any podcasts that you're on, so you could. I guess we could just pimp this episode of this show for now. Yeah, yeah, pimp the episode of this show. I'll get off. Uh, I'll get off my butt one of these days and start a podcast. I don't know. I, I've got a few ideas swirling around in my brain. So one of these days. <laughs> well, if you have some ideas, by all means, go for it. I don't. Try, I never. I, I would try to encourage everybody because I know I have a blast doing it. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, no problem there. But uh, once again, thank you. Thank you for everybody who's listening. Uh, I appreciate that. And we'll see you back here in two weeks when we look at another movie. Doc, let's make some scotch. Scotch? As naval officers, we're supposed to be resourceful. Frank here's got a great opportunity, and I've let him down. Let's fix him up. Right. Frank, where's the rest of that alcohol we were drinking last night? Well, now that ain't even the right color. Quiet, boy. Color. Coke. You got any? I haven't seen a Coke in four months. No, it's five months. Oh. I forgot I had it. What shade would you like? Shade? Pale? Smoky? Oh, well, I told her red label. Red label? Red label. Yeah, well, it may look like it. It sure won't taste like it. Doc, what does scotch taste like? Oh, it tastes like, uh, uh... You know what it's always tasted a little like to me? Iodine. Of course. One drop of iodine for taste. Let me try that. This calls for a medical opinion. How about it? We're on the right track. Now we need a little something extra for age. What have you got there, Dad? Seltzer, bismolino fruit salts, pear tonic. Pear tonic. That's got a coal tar base. One drop of hair tonic for age. That'll age that daylights out of it. That's it. You know, it does taste a little like scotch. Do you know it does? Smooth, that dumb little blonde will never know the difference. All right, Frank.